Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us safely to a brand new day. Preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin, nor be overcome by adversity or anxiety. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth, the fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the air, on everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal, I will require it. And from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human, that person's blood be shed. For in his own image, God made humankind. And you be fruitful, multiply, abound on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah, and to his sons with him, as for me, I'm establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature for all generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me, you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Okay, so as Genesis chapter 9 begins, Noah and his sons are exiting the ark, and the same blessing that God gave to Adam in the garden is extended to Noah, because remember, Noah, in a sense, is kind of like a restart. He's a new Adam, but we're going to see pretty quickly that he is not the new Adam that is needed to bless the whole creation, and that's a prefiguring to the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ, who will bless the whole creation. But before we get there, we see this attempt at the new Adam and Noah, who is blessed to be a blessing. And that's how this chapter begins with God blessing Noah and giving him the same commission that Adam was given, which is to be fruitful, to multiply, to extend God's goodness throughout the whole creation. But we notice in verse two that something has changed that God's presence with and to this creation where sin still reigns has shifted. And so notice how the relationship between the new Adam and the creation has shifted. The fear and dread of Noah and his sons will rest on all the animal kingdom. They are delivered into their hands for food. And this is a clear change from what we see in Eden. For the first time, there is a rupture, really not for the first time, but as the creation, the new creation comes into being post-flood, it starts with an acknowledgement 
that this really isn't the Garden of Eden anymore, that there is a rupture between humankind and the animal kingdom, and that the humans are now permitted to eat the animals as food. And so there's not just sacrifice, right, that has entered the picture. Last week, Noah built an offer and made a sacrifice of an animal to God, but there's also now the eating of animal flesh for food, which was not present in the Garden of Eden. And so this new creation is not a perfect creation. There is still a bit of a fall. But notice how there is an emphasis on the sacredness of human life and how God basically reiterates that humans are made in God's own image. And we see the first glance, the first kind of preview of the Mosaic commandment of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, where basically capital punishment here, which was very much sanctioned under Mosaic law offered uh, as a form of justice, um, that basically human beings were seen to be sacred. And so if you kill a human being, there will be an accounting for your life. And this is really somewhere in between, I think, the ethic we see in Jesus, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus lays out the ethics of the kingdom, Jesus goes as far as to say, you know, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you that anyone who's even angry with a brother or sister will be liable to judgment. And so Jesus kind of affirms that Moses's commandment of an eye for an eye was a concession due to the hardness of people's hearts. And he offers them a new ethic that's rooted in the arrival of the kingdom of God in and through his own person. However, this is an improvement over what we see in Genesis chapter four, for instance, with Lamech. Remember Lamech said, if Cain be avenged sevenfold, Lamech will be avenged 77-fold. You have this glorifying of violence with this figure of Lamech in chapter four. And so in a sense, even though uh, it is not the ethic we see in the Sermon on the Mount, this is an improvement over what we saw in Genesis chapter 4 and a preview of the Mosaic law, which is meant to bring justice to the earth. And so is it the full justice of the kingdom? No. Is it a step in the right direction given where we've been? Yes. And so after God gives the law, really around the sacredness of human life, God says to Noah that he is establishing his covenant with them. But notice verse 10, also with every living creature. And this is reiterated in verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. And that covenant you know, stated crudely is that God will never drown the earth with water again, but seeing it symbolically, it's a covenant of mercy. It's a covenant of blessing. Last week, God looked at the human heart, saw that every inclination was evil from birth, basically said, I can't do this again. There has to be another way. And so God basically affirms, I'm now in a covenant with you in the creation. It is an everlasting covenant. And the sign of the covenant is the bow in the clouds. Some have said that this is a war bow, but I don't really think that's the best interpretation. Robert Alter, the great Hebrew scholar says, no, it really is the rainbow. If you read it in context, right? The rainbow is the sign of the covenant. And I really like that, you know, even now to look up in the sky after a rain, to see the rainbow. It's a good remembering that uh, this is a sign of grace and a sign of God's goodwill 
towards the creation, and that this is an everlasting covenant, and an everlasting covenant that predates God's covenant with Abraham. And so there's something eternal about this covenant that God makes with the creation, this covenant of mercy, that never again will God send water to flood the whole earth. And if you really want to take this to a much deeper level, because we're coming right off of the Feast of Pentecost, or the way my daughter Annie says it, the Feast of Pentecosta, which I like a little bit better. The Feast of Pentecost is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel, who says, in the last days, I will send my spirit upon all flesh and my grace you know, will essentially cover the whole creation as the waters cover the sea. And so basically the covenant then shifts over time from not only will I not fill the whole earth with this deadly water, but instead I will fill the whole creation with my spirit, the same spirit that created this whole thing in the first place. And next week, we're going to be talking about the Tower of Babel, where human beings ascend to heaven and God scatters their language. And it's been noted that Pentecost is really a reversal of that, right? Rather than we ascending to heaven, the spirit descends to earth. Rather than God scattering our languages, all of a sudden we can understand each other through the spirit. We're all speaking one language. And so there's a sense in which this covenant that says, I will never again flood the earth with water is meant to preview and to foreshadow a deeper understanding of that covenant, where it's not that God is just going to refrain from doing something, but that God is also going to positively act through the sending of the Holy Spirit. Last thing I want to say is that this is a covenant not between God and humanity, but between God, human beings, and all flesh. That includes the animal kingdom. And the prophetic vision is that when the new creation comes fully, the lion and the lamb will lie down together in perfect peace. There is a reconciliation of the animal kingdom with each other and with human beings. And so this chapter starts out with the reality that the fear and dread of Noah and his sons is felt by all the animal kingdom and that they are permitted to eat those animals as food. However, there's this little preview, this little window that basically says that is the reality of life in a fallen world, but it's not a picture of salvation because the covenant is with all flesh, including those animals that are now terrified of Noah and his sons and have to hide lest they be eaten or sacrificed. And so you have scripture both naming how life looks in a fallen world, but in a very subtle way, uh, previewing what a cosmic holistic view of salvation will look like. Okay, so we will resume with verses 18 through 28. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, and he became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. 
their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived for 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. So this is a, a really odd and, and in a sense, kind of dark story. And basically, it starts out reminding us that Noah has three sons, and because the rest of humanity has been drowned, they're the fathers of everybody. And that one of these three sons is privileged. One of these sons gets space and gets to live in the, the tents of this other. And one of them is just utterly cursed and is set to live a life of enslavement. And so it starts out with Noah, a man of the soil. Now, whenever you see a man of the soil in the book of Genesis, this is a reminder that we are dealing with a new Adam a very imperfect, flawed Adam, uh, very much like the first Adam, but a man of the soil. Remember, soil is Adama. So Adam is Adam of the Adama, a man of the soil. Soil is close to Adam. So Noah, who was also made of the soil or the dust, he plants a vineyard. Whenever you see vineyard and wine, reading this through a figurative reading, it foreshadows Christ right, who offers us a chalice of blessing, his own blood. But of course, Noah will be a mockery of that behavior. He will plant a vineyard. I guess no one's really invented wine before, so no one told Noah to limit himself to two glasses, maybe three at the most. He drinks it up, he gets drunk, and he passes out in his tent. And Ham, one of his sons, were told, sees the nakedness of his father and tells his two brothers. Others. Now, um, it, it's really important. We can have theories on what it is that Ham did wrong, but to quote Robert Alter, that great Hebrew scholar, and I quote, he says, no one has ever figured out what exactly Ham does to Noah. And so there's something about this trespass that is a mystery. But the two main guesses have been these. Number one was that this was a shame and honor culture. And in a shame and honor culture, you don't look at your father's nakedness and then giggle about it to your two brothers. So that is a way of bringing shame on your family. And of course, there's something kind of irrelevant echoing of Genesis chapter three, where Noah is naked and also ashamed. And so there's a lot going on here with Noah's nakedness. It's a parallel to Adam. It's a parallel to transgression that we see in Genesis chapter three. But there's also a sense in which it could be in a shame and honor culture, the very act of looking at your father's naked body and not covering him up, which, you know, Shem and Japheth did, and then talking about it to your brothers is inherently disrespectful enough to lead to a cursing. So that's option one. Option two is that often to see the nakedness of someone in scripture is a euphemism for a sexual act. And so it is it is possible that there was a, a sexual act with his father here in his nakedness that some have hypothesized. And certainly the Israelites, they saw the Canaanites as being really sexually 
I don't know what the word is, perverse or mischievous people, people who did not have good sexual standards, who slept with a bunch of temple prostitutes and did not have any sexual ethics. And so that's that's another possibility. But but either way, the story implies that Ham does something inappropriate and that Shem and Japheth, they do something appropriate, right? They cover their father up and they walk backwards to make sure they don't see their father naked. And so Noah wakes up and he just loses it. And what's very interesting about the story is that he doesn't curse Ham. He curses Ham's son, Canaan, and say, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. And remember, uh, the Israelites, their primary enemy were the Canaanites. And whenever they entered the land of Jericho, it was the Canaanites they sought to displace. And there's a lot of kind of haunting passages in scripture. I've got one here from Deuteronomy 20, where God says, but as for the towns of these people that the Lord is giving you, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, just as the Lord has commanded, so that they might not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods. And so kind of the charge in Deuteronomy is that these people are so bad, their behavior is so awful, they really have to be wiped out. And so if you're to think about a story, if you're an Israelite and you're given that charge, that basically legitimizes that behavior towards the surrounding people, it can be very helpful to have an origin story about why these people are so bad. And in a sense, this story of Noah lying naked and having the father of Canaan do something inappropriate basically says, yep, all these people, they descend from a, a bad seed. And our desire to turn them into our slaves is legitimized and blessed. Now, to be very, very clear, I think everyone understands this. This is not even close to the Bible's final word on the subject. And whenever we read things in Deuteronomy, right, like God basically commanding the Israelites to commit mass genocide, I think that it is very, very important to read that as the people's best understanding of what it meant to be faithful to God at that time and under those circumstances as, uh, you know, to read it that way as opposed to God really desiring that an entire people group be wiped out, right? Because what does it say? in scripture, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the story of scripture is the story of God being with people where they are under those circumstances. It's not the story of God dictating who gets to live, who doesn't get to live uh, from on high and then kind of changing his mind whenever God sends Jesus. And so there is a gradual awakening of what it means to be a blessing to the creation that emerges as scripture unfolds. And so whenever we read this passage, I think it's really important to look at it through a lot of different lenses. I think one lens we can look at it through is that of a story that would have been important to the Israelites struggling to make sense of these neighbors they had who probably did do some pretty awful things, the Canaanites. And so this was a helpful story. I also think it's helpful to see, you know, through that figurative lens that Noah, in a sense, is a failed new Adam. 
And this whole salvation by flood is a failed new creation, which points to the need for something better, something different that will start in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham and culminate with Abraham's seed, as Paul says in Galatians, being Jesus himself, the true Israelite through whom all the generations are blessed. But whenever we see, you know, Noah taking a chalice and getting drunk and passing out naked, right? That's a juxtaposition we can make with Jesus, the new Adam, raising that wine in blessing and then pouring it out to benefit others, right? To cover their nakedness. And so there's a lot that we can kind of see here in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that really are going to preview and set up the need for the story to take a different direction, which it does in Genesis chapter 12. The last thing I want to say about this is that to say that scripture is the word of God or that it is authoritative doesn't mean we cherry pick stories like this and interpret them however we want. And one of the things we never want to ignore would be how passages are twisted and misused for the worst purposes. And so it's important to to read a story like this and to say, we need to honor this as the word of God, but to do so mindful that the word of God ultimately points to a God who becomes human and dies and rises from the dead. But we don't want to do with this passage what people in the 17th century did, who basically said that African Americans or people of African descent, you know, through an odd kind of form of logic, were descendants of Ham. And that scripture legitimized their slavery, right? Because that was a big argument when people were fighting for the abolition of slavery. A lot of Christians on the other side would actually point to Genesis chapter 9 to say, well, actually, we believe that they are the children of Ham, right? And so we have to be very, very careful when we read these passages. On the one hand, not just to throw them out because they're uncomfortable, but on the other hand, to be very mindful of how they've been used, not to bring justice to the world, right? Which is the point of scripture. It's to help us bring justice to the world, but rather in service to the exact opposite. So I'm gonna go ahead and pause there and we'll see uh, what's stirring up in you as we have this conversation.